What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rebunked. My name is Scott, coming at you live from the Last American Vagabond Studios here in historic Franklin, Tennessee. Um, I've got another fantastic episode for you here today, guys. I'm really, really excited about this one. So, um, actually, we got a lot of new folks here, I guarantee, um, like probably more people than I've ever had tuning into a live stream right now currently. So, I'm really excited about this. I want to let you guys know a little bit about where you can follow and support the show. So, the main place is rebunked.news. That's the website. Um, as you scroll down, you're going to see all the video platforms that I'm on. Uh, right now, we're streaming live on Rockman and Rumble. Uh, this will later be uploaded to InfoWarsBand.video, BitChute, and Odyssey. Thanks to Content Safe. So, if you're a content creator and you need some help getting your shows distributed out, um, ContentSafe.co or get in touch with me, and I can put you in touch with Matthew Raymer, who runs that outfit. Um, make sure you take a moment and subscribe on any podcast player so you can listen on the go. Um, if you're new to the show, I've got lots of really good episodes to go back and listen to or on Apple, Spotify. So just go ahead and subscribe and listen on the go. Uh, the premium stuff is over on the subscribe star. So just five bucks a month helps, uh, contribute to keep the show going and bring you awesome interviews like this. Um, and then social media t.me forward slash rebunked pod is the telegram. That's probably the best place. Like I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. You know what I mean? But I just, you know, my, my the main place that I'm dropping content is in Telegram. Uh, it's a direct way for me to get in touch with any of you. And uh, you guys can interact interact and chat back. I'm usually pretty accessible on Telegram. So uh, t.me forward slash rebunk pod. And you'll see value for value donation options at the bottom of rebunk.news. A uh, couple of other things. There's a t-shirt shop. So rebunk.news forward slash shirts. Or from the main page, rebunk.news, you see a link right there. We've got few different designs you know obviously the show's logo um compliance is violence can't depopulate an idea icy false flags we are many there a few and then several other designs so go check it out at rebunk.news forward slash shirts and last but not least truth trs is a heavy metal detox spray you just five sprays a day helps eliminate uh, absorb and eliminate all the heavy metals that have accumulated in your body and flushes them out so it's a great product i've used it for a long time and uh it's just uh, got a lot of awesome health benefits so truthtrs.com to learn more about that all right, guys. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in our guest today. So I'm very excited about this one. We have uh, Brooke Jackson, who former uh, regional director for Ventavia Research Group, who was uh, running clinical trials for Pfizer with their COVID shots. Now, Brooke, how are you doing? Welcome I'm to the show. I'm good. I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me. Happy 4th. Happy 4th, everybody. Thank you for joining me on the 4th. I know, you know, this is a big family holiday. And so uh, yes. uh, you know, I'm grateful that you took the time to speak with us here today. So why I was able to dress down today. <laughs> there you go. And you got your T-Lab shirt on. That's, I, that's do. Awesome. I do. That's I don't awesome. know if y'all can see it, but. Almost. Question everything. Question everything. Last American Vagabond. So, so, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm here broadcasting out of the Last American Vagabond studios. And I uh, first saw you on Ryan's show. Uh, yes. His daily wrap up, Last American Vagabond show. That was before I actually got here. I, I you know, I, I was living in Oregon, and uh, I was planning on moving out here to Tennessee. And I, I was kind of already in touch with Ryan, and he told me like, "Hey, if you're coming in, into the Nashville area, you know, you can come use my studio if you want." I'm like, well, originally at the time I was going to Chattanooga, and he was like, right. and so that, at that point I was like, okay, I guess I'm coming to Nashville. You know what I mean? So that was <laughs> so. I do love Nashville. I told you I almost moved to Nashville a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, it's awesome now that you have the SB, what is it, 2311, 20, 2188. 2188. Oh, 
what is this? You got to tell me about it. Oh, that's the um, that's the bill that was passed um, allowing ivermectin to be. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, can I say that word? I'm sorry. You're fine. You look, I'm not on any platform that cares about anything that we say. So you can say vaccines. We can talk about Sandy Hook if you want, like whatever. It doesn't well, matter. they're not vaccines. We can call them, let's call them yes. something else. I've actually, I heard a, I heard a new one the other day that I kind of liked. Agents. Agents. Okay. Yes. Because, you know, these, these vaccines were procured under a contract with the Department of Defense. Um, that That's typically, the contract is typically used to um, <laughs> negotiate bioweapons. Interesting. Crazy. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll, I, we'll probably yeah. get into that. So totally, totally agent, whatever. I usually say shots or injections, you know what I mean? Just because yeah, they're not vaccines. Even, even with the, the fact that they changed the definition of what a vaccine is, it still doesn't fit their criteria. So I know. I, know. Yeah. I was not anti-vax until yeah. that definition changed, but yeah. I certainly fit into that category, that category now. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, before we get too far into it for anybody that's listening, that may not be familiar, um, cause you've been doing this for a long time. You've been in this field for a long time, but, but it wasn't until this situation came up that it sounds like, like you kind of saw maybe behind the curtain a little bit. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background and kind of what brought you into the sphere of Pfizer and, and have you worked with Pfizer before in your, I have, I have I've worked yeah. with Pfizer for, for, and on many of their clinical trials, but a little background. I have been in clinical research in the industry for almost 20 years now. And that experience comes mainly from the trial site level. So for this particular um, research study, Pfizer's COVID vaccine trial, Mm -hmm. there were 153 clinical trial sites across the globe that were participating in enrolling patients in the study. So I was the regional director for two of those three locations in uh, September of 2020. Okay, perfect, perfect, awesome. Uh, so how many people were in your actual study that you were o- overseeing? Like what were the total number of people? You know? So the total number of patients that Pfizer was looking to enroll in this pivotal trial was around 44,000. Okay. So my company, Ventavia Research Group, the two sites um, that I was over and there was one additional site in Houston, Texas, which was a little far for me to, you know, just oversee those day-to-day operations. So we had another regional director who was, who was managing that site, but in total there were approximately 1000 patients. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, So in all of your years leading up to this, did you ever see any sort of trickery or nonsense that ever gave you like pause or, or hesitation? At this scale, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. You know, we 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 have I've seen protocol deviations before. I've seen things that um, would exclude data from being, um, you know, analyzed in the overall um, review of the data, but nothing nothing like I saw at Ventalia. Okay. Um. So so what was your first red flag in all of this? Like, what was the first thing that you saw? Well, yeah. Let's let's go there and then and I could. Yeah. preface that with something else. Well, I started September 8th of 2020 and immediately walking in the door um, and and just familiarizing myself with the space and the staff that we had. It was obvious that we were understaffed and the, the actual clinic that we were enrolling patients into was too small, but we had plans to, to 
um, move to a different location in within the same building, which would have given us more space. So that wasn't really, I mean, that's what I noticed right when I walked in, but with regard to the trial specifically, it was a lack of informed, informed consent. Okay. So what did that look like? Cause because we know, gosh, not only have they just completely thrown con informed consent out the window, but in so many cases, particularly with children, like they're trying to like redefine what consent means. You know what I mean? Like, like this whole thing of like implied consent. Yes. Um, I've talked about that quite a bit on the show where it's like, you know, they say, they, they issue some notification to the parents and they're like, Hey, you, you better, we're, we're issuing vaccines on this day. And so if you, ref, if you fail to hold your kid back from school that day, then that is you implying your consent to give you and just stuff like that. That's just so, yes. so it's like, like, like actual <laughs> consent is out the door, but then they're bringing in all these like ways to like muddy the water of what consent even means. So in the, in, in the context mm -hmm. of this clinical trial, what were uh, the, what were, how did they disregard informed consent? In, in many ways, but in, in medicine and clinical research studies specifically, informed consent is the most important part of the research study. This is my opinion. There's no, you know, regulatory, um, you know, or, or law that says that that is. This is my opinion. But informed consent is the most important thing. Without it, patients are not fully informed, you know, aware of what they're doing, um, the risks that are involved in participating in the study. Um, you know, they, they have just no idea what's going to happen to them when they're in the trial. And so making the patients fully informed, giving them that full informed consent, full disclosure, you know, was, um, was paramount. So when I'm shadowing uh, one of the research coordinators as she's providing this informed consent document, which was really long, it was 20 plus pages of information about the technology that was being used in the shot. It was, again, the risk benefits, um, what, what was required of the patient through their participation. There were um, just a, a lot of information. And instead of sitting down with the patient, allowing that patient time to read the informed consent, allowing that patient time to ask questions of that document, it was a really quick sign date here. And so I watched that personally happen and actually had to step in at the, at the first informed consent process that I watched and actually provide a fully informed consent. Um, and yes, that, so that, and as I'm later on through, through my employment, when I'm auditing, when I'm looking at other informed consent forms that have been um, completed, they actually were not complete. And what I mean by that is I would look at um, the signature pages from one page to the next because there were several uh, places where the patients needed to sign and date. Those, those um, signatures did not match. So I knew somebody had at my company had forged those documents. And we actually, I actually have email communication from other members of our management team acknowledging that. Wow. That's insane. Mm -hmm. So it's like not only just not obtaining them, but then going back and for just forging them. Like this Absolutely. is this, this yeah. is insane. This is insane. So imagine it's just again the 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 clinic's small. Yeah, we were understaffed. We needed triple the number of research staff that we had. People were afraid. People were were lining up to to sign up to do this clinical trial. So. 
in order to move patients in the rooms and out of the rooms quickly, you know, this, this company just had no regard for following standard operating procedures, following Pfizer's own clinical trial protocol, following codes that govern clinical trials, uh, federal regulations, the, the patient safety, there was no regard for that. Ventavia was interested in, in lining their pockets. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that was kind of my, my next question. So this was this Ventavia then, or were these like mandates or things that you saw that directly tied back to Pfizer or wh how, where do you think the, the, the blame lies for that particular piece? So in, in research and in, in clinical trials, Pfizer specifically, they delegated some of their own responsibilities to a contract research organization, which in this case is a company called Icon. Icon is who contracted with Ventavia um, to do the study. But Pfizer will always be and be held responsible for mm -hmm. everything that its contractors do. Okay. Okay. Third party like Ventavia, but Icon was aware and Pfizer was aware of of all the things that I've laid out in in my my lawsuits. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from a, the informed consent to you know you you name it, everything yeah. that I've talked about, Pfizer was aware of. Yeah, and and so you're. <laughs> this is not just like you know hearsay. Like this actually got put out in like the British medical journal, right? There was like a big, big piece that came out. So how did the British medical journal get involved? Like, what, how, what did that look like? Wow. That's, um, that's kind of a long story. I'll try to, Great. I'll try yeah. to summarize. So from the day that I started with Ventavia through the day that I was fired, which was only 18 days later, every day I was bringing things to the attention of, of my leaders who were the owners of the company there were there was a you know a, a director of, of operations and then the two regional managers. So there there were not very many of us in this you know um, this management team. But I was bringing this to their attention every single day. Patient safety. Um, if FDA walks in here right now, I had no doubt that they would immediately shut down the site. Um, you know, but again, that patient safety that I knew that. That that was first, obviously, but then the integrity of the data, what we were doing, falsifying data, fabricating data, all of everything that makes um, data good, I knew was going to go to the FDA. So I have always, it's been just my goal in every study that I do, whether it's device or biologic or therapeutic, to make sure that the the data that comes from my clinical trial sites is sound, it's clean, and you know that that's been my job. Mm -hmm. So when I got fired from from Ventavia, that happened after I contacted the FDA. I contacted them the morning of the 25th of September because my company wasn't doing anything. I alerted Pfizer, although I did that anonymously. And my next step was to let the FDA know what was going on at, at this company. I am so sorry. Did you hear that, guys? It's all right. Is the kids running around? That was my son playing a video game who just cussed, and he's oh. grounded. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I apologize. All good. But um, 
So I contacted the FDA the morning of the 25th of September of 2020. That afternoon, I was I was let go. My company called me and they fired me on the spot and said that I was being fired because I wasn't a good fit. Okay. Which is true. I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at this, at this point, you were making kind of a big uh, to do in, in the office or were you just just like maybe not to do like causing a scene, but you were you were obviously pushing back at this point or. or... Certainly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And that really happens that on the 17th of September, when I, when I realized that we were unblinding every single patient mm -hmm. from the start of the study till then, it was my recommendation as their regional director to immediately stop enrolling patients in the clinical trial per Pfizer's own protocol. We should have stopped and, you know, and stopped enrolling and let them know that we had unblinded all these participants. And two, because of the, the, the temperature storage, we were not storing this, this vaccine product at, you know, the appropriate temperature. And that was another, another part where in Pfizer's protocol, we should have quarantined all that product and stopped enrolling, but they didn't care. They just wanted to keep going, keep going. Okay. So the unblinding process was, was that basically to, because they felt like, and I've heard this described in many different contexts, but was this like the type of case where they said that they felt ethically like they needed to give the, 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 the actual shot, the quote unquote shot to the, the placebo group in order to make sure that they had immunity too, like an ethical thing. Like, is that their argument or was this a different approach? So that happens, I believe I can't, I can't recall which month, but early 2021. No, this happened in 20, September of 2020. Okay. Yes. So what did, what was their reasoning for unblinding the study at that point? And maybe tell us a little bit about what unblinding the study means and what the implications on how that impacts the data. Sure. Sure. So this particular study design was, was observer blinded. So what that meant is everybody that was working on the study at, at, at the site where the patients are being enrolled, were blinded to the treatment group, whether that was the placebo arm or the vaccine arm. 50% 50, 50 of patients got the placebo, 50% of the patients got the, the actual vaccine. That, that stays blinded to the staff, the study doctor overseeing the patient's you know, safety, their, their welfare during the trial. The only person that was unblinded was, was the one that was giving the injection. And that's done so to prevent a bias from being injected in, into into the study. You know that could, um, you know, affect if the if the study doctor knows that you're getting the vaccine or the placebo. That may affect how he treats you, or how we and what adverse events, for example, we capture. So it's just to prevent, you know, um, a, a bias from being injected by by keeping ever every. Buddy's treatment assignment, kind of a secret. Yeah, and it makes total sense. So, what was their reasoning for unblinding this particular? It was completely just a, an oversight on on the part of Ventavia. They um, printed instructions for the research staff to file the the drug assignment in a patient's chart. So, if the patient, for example, called because they were ill. Um, and the study doctor pulled their chart, that doctor would see right away that this patient was assigned placebo or this patient was applying, you know, um, assigned vaccine. Okay. So there, there it is right there. So I can imagine a situation where like, you know, they can, 
say they saw that like let's say the doctor had a, a certain bias about the whole situation right and like they they saw like a vaccinated person called in with like a complaints of some adverse reaction they could they could just choose to sweep that under the rug you know or just not address it or or magnify or amplify the cases of people who were reporting adverse reactions that didn't that were in the placebo group you know what i mean like so yeah it's just exactly, like, exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 so now we're we're left up to the whims of people right so that's that's crazy man um mm -hmm. Crazy. So, uh, so some of the other things that you're asserting here, like, um, you were saying, uh, the falsification of data, that seems like a yeah. big, big no, no, you know? And it's like, to us, when we look at this stuff, like, man, I've been looking at this stuff for like, you know, obviously since the beginning. And it's just like, we keep seeing like them reporting it one way. And then when you take a couple steps back and look at the full picture, like it's actually the data tells us something completely different. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so crazy. So now here, you're saying they're actually just literally just falsifying data. Like, what does that look like? Well, it, it was happening even before I got, um, I started working at Ventalvi. I was copied on some emails that were going around in my company in August of 2020, where three employees were, uh, you know, had some um, HR um, disciplinary action taken for falsifying and fabricating data. And that, again, just goes back to how understaffed they were and the number of patients that they were enrolling into these trials on a daily basis. There's just, you know, absolutely no way that, you know, four or five people could manage how many were actually being being enrolled in these in the, in the study every single day. So just in a rush, in a rush, they might have missed uh, a blood pressure, for example, <clears throat> Um uh, you name it, something, a data point that needed to be captured in, in the study. And going back through our internal quality control um, process, we would note that something was was inadvertently not, not captured. And then I would go back and look at these charts and that information would suddenly just be there. Interesting. Yeah. You, you, so you mentioned, you mentioned the idea of, so you got to think about like the daily like boots on the ground logistics of an operation like this, like onboarding participants into the trial, right? Like, like generally you'd have to like sit down, spend a good amount of time qualifying mm -hmm. that person, seeing if they have any like contraindications, things that would particularly disqualify them from the study, you know? And, and so it sounds like in your case, they were just breezing right through the people, cutting corners, skipping over things, which is a liability for the people's health to begin with that you're entering into the trial. I mean, that's just, that's, that's criminal yeah. right there. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you about, um, it was brought to my attention earlier was, uh, you know, so you were mentioned that these are happening all over the, the country and all over the world too. Like it wasn't exclusive to the United States. Like one of the ones that I've heard about is, uh, in Argentina, they had, uh, uh, site 1231. Are you familiar with that one? You know what yes. I'm it yeah. seems yeah, from what I know, it's like, it's, uh, it was like four over four, like 4,500 people in that, in that trial. And it was like, so what was reported is like over 10% of the whole trial took place in Argentina. And one of the things we know about like them, <laughs> like with Fauci running clinical trials over in Africa and stuff like that gives them the opportunity mm -hmm. to cut even more corners. You know what I mean? Like historically. So yes. you know, like 1231 and what are your thoughts on it? Well, my, my thoughts, um, I have so many of them about yeah. that particular site. Um, that's Dr. Fernando Pollock site. And he frequently publishes in the, the new England journal of medicine um, there was a publication in December of 2020 that's really kind of um, a, a pivotal paper. 
And I'm, I'm just mad that, you know, although he did disclose that, you know, he had some financial conflict, he still, you know, to enroll that many patients, to be a principal investigator, and then to write a, you know, a peer-reviewed, you know, article and it'd be published there, him being the first author, it just makes me mad. Hmm. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Um, but but his 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 site was a military hospital, mm. and it's it is possible to enroll. Uh, I've I've been there enrolling in large, you know, um, high enrolling quick studies. But the speed at which that that clinical trial site was enrolling was 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 pretty fast. I have not had any researchers. That have that have come to me directly about seeing anything, um, you know, unusual. But I have had clinical trial participants get in contact with me, and there's one in particular at Dr. Dr. Pollock's site, and his name is Augusto Rue, and he has come forward. He was a clinical trial participant at that um, location, and he has given me all the receipts that he has. And um, he's actually an attorney. Interesting. Believe it or not. Yes. Yeah. So we are in contact, and I've given his contact information and his evidence to my attorney team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I definitely want to get into that here in just a minute because, uh, you know, in, 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 like we were talking a little bit before, you know, in, in preparation for this show and promoting the show a little bit, like I had so many people reach out to me and just saying like, Oh, Brooke, she's such a hero, you know? And then it's just like, you mean, you really are. I mean, like, like taking this, like not only exposing it and putting like going public with this stuff, but then actually pursuing and engaging in legal action against these, these horrible people that deserve to be held accountable that, you know, just, you know, thank you. Thank you for your, for your service in that regard. Um, but before we get before we get into that here, let's see. There was one other thing. Oh, the inadequately trained, oh. so the, the inadequately trained people that were on site administering these. Like, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw in terms of that? Yes, yes. Back to back to being understaffed. They were Ventavia was placing um, employees in positions that were way beyond their scope. And I, the example that that I always give. There's others, but. When I first met the receptionist that was working at Ventavia, um, she's a young young lady, and I I can't remember exactly what day it, day it was. Within the first week that I was on site, I was taking every one of my staff just individually, introducing them to, to me, um, just telling them you know my background, where I came from, my ideas. And when I'm looking and, and talking to her and asking her, you know, kind of just what her goals were, et cetera, I'm looking at her resume as she's talking to me as our, our front desk reader, our receptionist. And then our conversations interrupted and she is, is called to the back and, uh, and she's, she's actually our unblinded vaccinator. So she was the one that was in charge of preparing the vaccine and injecting these people with the vaccine with no medical experience at all. And as a matter of fact, when I, when I finished looking, looking at her resume, she had, she only had retail and restaurant experience. Wow. That's it. Wow. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's insane. And so, okay. So you, um, 
you know, I went through a similar situation too, you know, where I was very outspoken in my workplace about my objections to the, to the, the mandatory shot. You know, obviously I was on the other side of the whole issue, but you know, they came after me and fired me too and turned into a whole thing. And I, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, so, so you, you're fired. And then, um, like, what was your next step after that? Like, gosh, I think the last time oh, I'm not even go there, but, uh, how, okay. So from the point where you got fired until you, uh, started pursuing legal action, what did that look like? So I feel like I gave, I, I come from a military family and so chain of command has always been important to me. So sure. I reported what, what I'd found in my internal inspection and my audits to my company. They did nothing but try to hide it. Mm. So my next step was to contact Pfizer, although, again, I did that anonymously. I let them know. And then I, I contacted the, the FCA. Yeah. Then I was fired immediately, like six hours later. Okay, I got you. And what, what did the FDA say real quick while we're here? Like, what, what was their response? Did they give you anything? Well, I called them first, and then I was I was given um, a website directed to a, a online, you know, form to fill out. I completed that form. And then on the 29th of September is when, when the FDA called me and we spoke for a little over an hour and I went in my, I mean, the conversation pretty much mirrored what was in my typed complaint. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was it. You know, she thanked me for bringing the information forward, but you know, there was, you know, talk about me not knowing what would come from the investigation, which was fine. But I thought that, they were going to at least based on on my credibility and 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 what i reported the the patient safety um, piece especially and then again the data integrity this was this was a worldwide pandemic and a potential uh, vaccine for um, you know the prevention and 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 transmission of that so they knew how important it was. So I thought that they were going to go in and at least inspect Ventavia, probably find more things than I did, and just ensure that the data that came from Ventavia was not used in their overall analysis to prove this vaccine's safety or this vaccine's efficacy. Yeah. Wow. I thought that would happen. And I had I had every every belief that that was exactly how it was going to go down. Yeah. Fast forward, so that was in September, the end of September 2020. January 8th of 2021 is when I filed my lawsuit. I knew that there had not been an inspection at Ventavia. Instead, they were just being awarded with more contracts, you know, in, in different vaccine candidate trials, such as, you know, um, Moderna. <laughs> Yeah. And change. So they, you know, RSV, they were just being given more contracts with Pfizer and more contracts with, with these other other pharma companies. So that's when I decided I was going to, to file the lawsuit. And I did that January 8th of 2021. Yeah. OK, well, this is where it gets really interesting now. So because like some of the revelations that have come out because of that, like some of the claims that Pfizer's made, like, for example, um, you know, they were like, well, we, our contract says we can cut corners, right? Is that, is that the case? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's what they're, that's what they're, um, that's what they're arguing. So yeah, the, the type of lawsuit that I filed is called a false, false claims act, or um, you'll hear me refer to it sometimes as a key TAM action. 
And what that does is allow a private citizen like myself to file a lawsuit on behalf of the United States government mm. and the people. And I did that again against Pfizer, Ventavia, and Icon. So there's three defendants. I am the relator only. This is a lawsuit, the United States of America with Brooke Jackson as the person bringing it forward. I filed this on behalf of the people because Pfizer's vaccine is misbranded. It doesn't work as they claimed it would. And, you know, we've, we've been cheated out of, of millions and millions of dollars. When I, when I file that, when you file a False Claims Act case, it immediately goes under a court-ordered seal. The original seal is for 60 days, while the government has an opportunity to investigate my allegations without tipping off the potential defendants or, or the defendants. They requested a seal extension after that initial 60 days, which, um, you know, the, the judge... A judge granted. So they had until September of 2021 to again investigate the allegations and decide whether or not they wanted to take over the lawsuit. They had three choices at that point. They could intervene, which means kind of join in um, and take over the, the prosecution, investigation, et cetera, or they can decline to intervene in the case, which is what they eventually did. But at that point, it allows me to move forward with the action on, on my own. So in September of, of 21, they requested another seal extension for another six months. And at this point, I, I just, I, I've been in contact with my attorney team, my former attorney team constantly as the you know vaccine received its emergency use in mm -hmm. December of 2020, when it started to come after our children, the mandates started coming, and I told my attorney team, I you know I, I I'm not going to stay quiet forever. I I feel like I am holding this secret, and it's just weighing on my heart and and my I just can't I just can't keep the secret anymore. People need to know how this clinical trial is run. And I, I'm going to have to just break the court ordered seal and come forward with the information. And I was warned and they told me, if you come forward, Brooke, the government is going to come after you. And I said, well, just let them come because it's just too, too, too heavy on me. And at that point, a few days later, when I told my attorney that I was gonna gonna take the information public, uh, he immediately like withdrew as my attorney and left me without representation. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a, a, a little bit, and I was able to um, add Robert Barnes to yeah. my team. He is my my lead guy. Shout and, out to Robert Barnes. How'd you get in touch with him? How'd you get plugged in with him? It's a secret. I can't tell. Okay, you. fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. He, he was, um, I met somebody at a, um, uh, I met somebody through a friend and we were at Senator Johnson's round table of, of vaccine experts. And there were some uh, vaccine injured um, you know, victims that, that were able to speak to stay. 
And through this friend of a friend, I mean, it was just an introduction and uh, Robert agreed to, to take the case pretty much like right away um, on a, you know, a contingent basis. I've never, he's never asked me for anything um, and completely supportive. And, and now, you know, um, we've added more attorneys to the team, Warner Mendenhall and his group and, and out of Ohio have been amazing. I think we, you know, went from having Robert and his team to, I mean, I, I think there's probably well over 20, 20 attorneys that, that are working for the people of the United States. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been following Robert Barnes for a while too. You know what I mean? Like long before this. Um, so that's, that's amazing that you've gotten teamed up with him. That's fantastic. Um, My husband follows him too. He has a, you know, he does his own, you know, bourbon with Barnes and a sidebar with Viva Frey. And my husband listens all the time. And he was listening to him the other night. And I said, if I have to hear Robert Barnes speak one more time. (laughs) No, but it is. It's great to have, you know, somebody just with his experience. He's brilliant. You know, Warner Warner as well. They just have the most brilliant minds. And I enjoy listening to them talk about, you know, what, what so many of us are going through because they're just always thinking of, you know, thinking ahead. So it's, yeah. it's been great. But how the BMJ, back to how the BMJ got <laughs> yeah. information. So I, I knew in September that I couldn't just not tell this story. It wasn't a story that belonged to me. It belonged to everybody. And I had been following Peter Doshi, who's, um, who works for the BMJ as, as an editor. And he has been calling for transparency in clinical trials for years and I happened to read a publication and he was just asking just the right questions. And I, I asked, I remember thinking to myself, why isn't anybody else asking these questions, you know, of the clinical trial data specifically? And so I, I sent the documented evidence that I had to the BMJ and they um, partnered with an investigative journalist, Paul Thacker, who became, you know, him and I became really close. So it was phone calls every day, him asking questions and going through this evidence. And again, you know, I, I like to point out that this isn't my information. This isn't my paperwork. This is Pfizer's. This is Ventavia. And this is Icon's own documentation, their internal communications. You know, I did re- record a couple of conversations, um, you know, that corroborate their own documented evidence, but, um, or their own documentation that, you know, has been kind of, you know, used and will be used as evidence, but this is their stuff. This isn't mine. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) So, um, have you, so the British medical journal, I remember when this all happened, like they, they Mm -hmm. made a, they made a whole, they, they issued, issued a paper describing the situation. And then there was like this massive, like, like didn't the fact checkers come after them and about all these like crazy attacks and stuff like that. Like, what do you remember going, what was that like going through? Oh yeah. That? Yeah. So, I mean, this was, I made, I made like a little short documentary on this case actually. Well, I, I was making it, well, I was making it a little short about uh fact checkers in general and your, oh. your case came up and I did like a little few minutes on your case just to point out the madness and hypocrisy and the, the, the tricks and techniques that they use to, oh. to discredit to discredit was it like lead stories wasn't that what it was wasn't that Am Scott, I, yeah, yeah play it play it you want me to play, play it? it okay let's play it yeah oh, well okay okay well we're live i have as much time i'm not in any hurry okay well we got we're, well here let, tell, tell me about your experience while i get this pulled up here sure sure so you know the 
the time that we spent going through all of this documented, you know, this paperwork, um, it was, I want to say a, a good month and a half, two months. And then, it, you know, there was the peer review. I mean, it was peer reviewed by clinical trial experts and then published. And, you know, I, I don't want to misspeak, but you could, um, I, I might give you a, a link and you can pull it up and look for yourself. Sure. But this is the second most um, cited publication, I think, for, yeah. for the BMJ. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's been, you know, cited a lot, it's been downloaded a lot. And a couple of weeks after, after it was released, it started to There's become lies and misinformation. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Sorry. Okay. That's okay. Go ahead, go now go ahead. So, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So the BMJ was alerted that the, the article was no longer allowed to be shared. So when you, we started to look into it, found that it had been given a warning um, for missing context by a company called Lead Stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. You have it up? I I'm looking. Oh, you know what? I do have it right here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. This is cool. <laughs> I did. Yeah, this was God. When I, this was December. Yeah, yeah. 2021 is when I made this. Here, I'll just I'll pull it up it's about halfway through. But yeah, here yeah. we go. Yeah, I'm. I'm. This is what, this is like an example. So all you guys out there, that you see when I, if you guys. See what I mean? Like we were talking about the subscribe chart at the beginning of the episode. Like if you guys like, you know, everyone jumps on the subscribe chart. I could do these all day long, full time. But here we go, folks. I'm not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Here we go. Hold this on. Awesome. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to say stop sharing screen. We're going to add share screen and boom. So I made this little video. It's called fact check foul play. And this is just like right in the middle of it. So I'll put a link and you guys can watch the whole thing. Here we go. Constitute protected opinion. Interesting. Debunking debunkers has been around for a while. This is not just a post-COVID phenomenon. In a 2016 piece analyzing the bias and accuracy of PolitiFact, Matt Shapiro of the Paradox Project lays out some of the methods used by these fact checkers to create straw man arguments and other various deceptions, including, quote, sentence alteration, simple misstatements, fact checking the wrong fact, and even taking a statement, rewording it, and fact checking the rewarded statement instead of the original quoted statement. Recently, the esteemed British medical journal zeroed in on fact checking foul play by focusing on lead stories, a questionable outlet that clearly has an agenda. In November 2021, the British Medical Journal brought to light claims by a whistleblower named Brooke Jackson, who came forward with information about Pfizer's COVID mRNA gene therapy clinical trials. Jackson stated that Ventavia, the company hired to run the clinical trials, was guilty of compromising the study due to poor laboratory management, patient safety concerns, and data integrity issues. When people began sharing this BMJ paper via social media, Facebook slapped a missing context label on it, throttling its visibility and shadow banned posts that included the paper. On December 17, 2021, the British Medical Journal published an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Meta, presenting their argument as to why this fact check has no credibility and should be removed. The BMJ claims that the lead story's fact check used deceptive tricks in order to besmirch the claims made by Brooke Jackson and the BMJ as a whole. Some of these claims include, the fact check fails to provide any assertions of fact that the BMJ article got wrong. It has a nonsensical title, 
quote, fact check. The British Medical Journal did not reveal disqualifying and ignored reports of flaws in Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trials. The first paragraph inaccurately labels the BMJ a news blog. <laughs> it contains a screenshot of our article with a stamp over it stating flaws reviewed despite the lead story's article not identifying anything false or untrue in the BMJ article. It published the story on its website under a URL that contains the phrase hoax alert. <laughs> it has been known for a while that entities heavily invested in the overall agenda, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. All right. So it goes on and on from there. But anyway, yes. that was my little, my little take on that. That was great. I love the, I love awesome. the cartoon. I love that. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, so that, so they just, just the vicious, like just, ridiculous attack that wasn't even based on and that's the other thing too is they don't attack any of the claims that you make they just look for like ad hominem or just like weird yeah. ways to discredit it in an ambiguous way that doesn't address the, the the issue so on a surface level anybody looking at this from the outside is going to be like oh that's debunked that's debunked yeah you know? well they really honed in on um you know i took one night i stayed in clinic uh after hours i was the only one there and i took a couple of pictures and one of the pictures that i took was of a plastic biohazard bag. And it's literally just, you know, a red plastic, like a trash can bag um, that had used needles, um, you know, things that didn't belong in this bag. We had just started enrolling patients that were um, HIV and hep C positive. And I remember that afternoon before, you know, and while patients were in clinic, um, patients sitting next to this bag that they had just sitting on the floor because yeah. of the space issue, right? Remember we talked about that earlier. So yeah. the plastic bag, you know, yes, it's sloppy. Did it speak to the overall integrity of the data that's that, you know, really was highlighted in the BMJ article? No, but it shows you just how sloppy Ventavia's practices were. And one of the reasons that I was just, it made, I, like these are patients that you're sitting right next to this bag that has used needles just sticking out of it anybody that brushed by this my staff my pa the patients um me yeah of course i don't want to get stuck by that there are you know it was osha violation yes you know but that was one of the things i remember that you know they were like what does it matter you know it just shows sloppy practices yeah it sure does but wait till you see what else they did yeah so they really need to focus on that but. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So here's, here's a good, interesting thought. So now that all this like Pfizer clinical data is coming out, right. <laughs> knowing what you know from how these studies were run, have you had a chance to take a look at that? Or are you kind of keeping up to date with this, these drops or these, I wouldn't say leaks, but these drops as they're being released. And then as the kind of the data gets reported, like, are you following them? Following you mean them? those documents that we had to sue for? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That they were trying to keep under wraps for 75 years. Right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what they were trying to do. And, and thank, thank God for Aaron Sear and his group and getting, yep. you know, getting, getting that, um, you know, lawsuit and, and winning and getting those documents out to the public, you know, yes. So I am involved and in, Naomi Wolf has a group um, of um, volunteers that are looking at this data. You know, I have made so many great friends in this journey um, yeah. to date and I, I guess I have a unique perspective because I can I can speak to how the clinical trial site was run at the site level specifically. So yeah, I mean I look at it I look at it all the time, and I I, I want to be clear because I don't I don't want to be given any credit for this, but I had no idea 
what was going to come from this data, right? Yeah. I didn't know that this vaccine was going to be what it is now. And now we know that from this data and from, you know, what's being reported out in the real world. I didn't know that. What I knew is that we had to get this clinical trial right. This, this was going, this product was going to be given to people all around the world. And so that's, that's, that's where I fit in. You know, I knew that it wasn't, wasn't being done right. Maybe just at two places and maybe just with a thousand patients. But when you look at the overall safety and when you look at the overall, especially the, the efficacy, those 1000 patients matter so much when determining what that efficacy was at the time, based on such a small subset of patients, the 162 and the eight. When people understand that, and when that's finally allowed to get out to the public, people are going to be pissed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's all coming out. I mean, every day more and more comes out and more and more people are waking up and, you know, even just people that I talk to, who uh, just aren't aware of these things. Like even them are just, even they are just like, yeah, I don't know. Like, like I mean, I, I think about that all the time and maybe Ryan and I even talked about this too, yeah. all the times that we've spoken, but how come more people don't know? I don't, I, I, if I wouldn't have been in the job that I was in and stumbled into this just massive fraud, yeah, I don't know that I would know because you know what? I don't watch TV. Yeah. I don't do social media. I, I just don't. You know, if, if we want to watch the news, we turn on the TV and whatever channel it lands on is what we watch, you know, local news station, whatever. We just, we just aren't, we are focused on our little family. I play volleyball. My kids play volleyball. My son does soccer. So I'm in and out all day long. And, you know, I love my job. So I was, um, you know, the, the job I had before Ventavia, I was on the road all the time. The last assignment I was, I was in New Orleans for 13 days. So I just didn't have, didn't have time for, for all this yeah, yeah. <laughs> social media and, and all, all that comes with that. I just didn't. Yeah. So maybe that's, maybe that's why, maybe there are more people that just don't care about it or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it's such a, an interesting, interesting thing. Like it's something that we, I talk about <clears throat> a lot. It's just like, it's so crazy how this has activated so many people, right? Like this was the big catalyst that brought it, that awoke, awoken so many people so many people have been like brought into consciousness into this world and activated and like god i wouldn't have a podcast i wouldn't be doing this right now if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for the whole covid madness rolling out you know i wouldn't you know so much so many of us wouldn't have a voice we wouldn't have you know been emboldened and 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 taken on these activist roles like and and now our lives are in this different trajectory like it's just so amazing you know it fascinates me so much to see this you know what i mean and it's just a it's 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 a direct proportionate to how crazy they they have gone with this. Like it's, you know, now we've now we've got this whole army of people who have just like awoken and and uh, are now marching towards truth and and uh, uphold you know, like these principles, right? Like we're standing on our principles, and it's just so invigorating, and it's just like it's so cool to be in this. You know what I mean? So, are you happier? Would you say that you're happier in in the work that you do now versus before? Oh, hundred oh, percent. Hundred percent. There's not a single thing in my life right now that is the same as it was when I before pre-COVID. You know what I mean? My life has gone one hundred percent different, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, hundred percent. And like, I just don't even know what I don't even want to go back to that life pre-COVID. You know what I mean? So that's that's the weird duplicity of this whole thing, right? And so we've we've found, I don't know, man. It's almost like my purpose. I don't know. 
I don't know. It's, it's in a weird way, you know, it's like, and, and it's like, I like to think I'm on the side of good and all these people out there, like the fact checkers and the debunkers and all like the mainstream, like I'm the bad guy. They're trying to say that I'm the bad guy. Come on, get out of here. Right. It's so crazy. Yeah. I know. I, I do feel like I, I feel similarly in that I'm like in this, in this, in the middle where sometimes I want to rewind to where my life was for mm. me. It's been almost, you know, in September, it'll be three, three yeah. years. Um, you know, sometimes I do. And then other times I just, I'm glad that I, I just know I'm supposed to be here mm -hmm. um, and, and fighting for the people that have been injured by this vaccine. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the, the reason that I do this. Yeah. Um, if there is, where, where do we leave off with the lawsuit? I forgot. <laughs> um, well, so we were, uh, we were moving into the preliminaries. Like you just gotten teamed up with, uh, Robert Barnes and you kind of told us a little yes. bit about like what the, the nature of the case was, but, uh, that was, that was going to be my next, uh, thing I was going to ask you about was basically, um, <clears throat> what, what is the ideal outcome? Like, what are you seeking and, uh, what kind of justice? And, and if you were to have it go exactly your way, like what kind of, uh, what kind of justice would be dished out here? Is this, is this so this is just like a, a civil case or is there any criminal implications here or is this set in precedent for future criminal? I think all of the above. I, I mean, there's so up. much potential. It's so early on in, 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 in the case we have um, it's obviously been unsealed at this point that, you know, un unsealing order to, uh, was in February of this year. So at that point I was able to openly speak about um there being an actual case. So when I took the information to the British Medical Journal, I gave them all of the, the, the evidence that I had, but there was never any revealing of an actual key TAM action or a False Claims Act case. And that's where some, some people have kind of got this wrong. I didn't break the seal mm -hmm. um, at that time. You know, I just revealed the facts about the case. Again, long story short, fast forward to... The February this year, the case becomes unsealed and I'm able to finally speak about it at this point or when we filed the uh, the complaints, it was for one point nine billion dollars. And that was the amount that the United States government had paid Pfizer for their 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 product. Mm. So. When we amend our complaint, and that's due in August, that number is going to go up. And I think when Robert and Warner spoke about it the other day, it was up to $100 billion. Okay. And like, so that isn't my money. I'm filing yeah. that this lawsuit on behalf of the United States. Yeah. 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 So if there is a, a successful recovery, then the majority of the money is going to the United States government. Mm. There's a, there's a percentage. Mm that me as the person bringing this forward or the relator that um, is awarded to me. I've, yeah. from the very beginning when, you know, <laughs> I met my original attorneys through, you know, adding um, and retaining Robert Barnes and Warner, they know that this, I don't want any part of that money. That money isn't mine. It doesn't belong to me. I did the right thing. I don't think yeah. that I'm a hero. I don't think that, I think that I did what I was, I did my job. Yeah, yeah. And so that any successful recovery portion that goes to me is going to be um, 
set up in a, in a fund for fund. injured. Yes. Okay. There you go. There you go. See, there you go. I think I heard all of the anarcho capitalists listening. I think I just heard all their heads explode when you said that a hundred billion dollars was going to go to the government, but no, no, no. To the vaccine fund, the compensation fund that, that, that's no, no, no. sorry. Oh. So just to be clear, okay. the, the $100 billion, if we are successful, that's how much the government has spent. I think there were just reports okay. of this the other day. A hundred billion dollars total has okay. been has been spent on this product. That's okay. how much the government has of our own tax dollars has yeah, yeah, yeah. for this vaccine. This lawsuit's filed on behalf of you and me. If there is any recovery, that's going to go to the government. Okay. That's okay. going back to the government. Okay. 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 There is a possibility that I get a percentage of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That gotcha. percentage is what I have, have, have said, you know, all along it's going, it's going to the vaccine injured. Totally. Okay. And oh, I, I see what you're saying. Oh, I see what you're yeah. saying. Okay. 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 Yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't mind taking Albert Borla. Albert Borla. Are you listening? Are you listening, Albert? Like I wouldn't mind taking a hundred billion dollars out of your pocket. That would be, that'd be nice. I know. I think I said that one time in a tweet, yeah. um, you know, that we should drain his bank account. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and Albert. put it in a fund. Yeah. We're looking at you, Albert. Oh my gosh. Um, criminal. Yeah. Just, just this is literal criminal. And I think they're scared, man. I think they're scared. I was watching a interview with like Anderson Cooper was interviewing, what was it? Bill Gates. And they just seem scared at this point. They just seem scared. They're like, like rats on a sinking ship, man. Like they're just like, they're just like, oh my gosh. Like it's Anderson Cooper actually did, um, a really good piece on Pfizer. I'll have to, I'll have to find it and I can send it. You can share it with your viewers. Okay. He did a story on Pfizer and I think, it, I think it was, I think it was titled too big to fail and nail. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to write myself a note. And be sure. To yeah. Send that to, send that to me. Send that really to good. me. You know what the other thing too is that you know one of my favorite interviews I've ever done is a guy named Dr. Henry Ely. Have you ever met or talked to Dr. Ely? No, no. he's he's. Oh, a, I'm sorry. Did you say David Healy? No, uh, Henry. Henry Ely. Oh, Henry. Dr. Henry yeah. Ely. He's based out of Oregon. Man, he is just God. He's one of the most like powerful speakers I've ever met in my life. And and he so him and his team they've been working on uh this thing to where okay so you know they have the um these uh, big pharma companies have a liability shield when it comes to these vaccines, you know, if, if, if someone gets injured, right, then it goes to the vaccine court and blah, 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 but you can't actually sue the manufacturers themselves. Right. And then through this emergency use authorization for Thank the, you, COVID, Prep Act. Through the, yeah, through the COVID shots, like they, they are also, there's also a liability shield there. Now, Dr. Henry, Henry or Dr. Ely's talking about how the, the, the exception to that is if they can prove willful misconduct on behalf of the pharmaceutical companies. And so the idea of willful misconduct would be in my estimation, if they can, if they can be held to account for running a intentionally fraudulent clinical trial, that to me seems like it would be willful misconduct, at which, at which point it would open them up to liability from people who have vaccine injuries. Right. So I think that this is such an important case in that sense too, where, you know, if we can prove willful misconduct in the clinical trials, then that opens them up to a lot more, levels of accountability that is unprecedented in this type of battle. You know what I yeah. Mean? Yeah. Unfortunately it doesn't though, because of the type of contract that the department of defense signed with oh, okay. Pfizer. So it wasn't your standard contract. Um, it's actually an other transaction authority is the type of contract that they signed. And basically what that means is that Pfizer did not, does not in this 
in this instance only, have to follow any of the standard federal acquisition regulations, nor do they have to follow any of the codes of federal regulations that govern clinical trials. The only, um, um, what was the word I'm looking for? The only thing that they had to do was bring in a, a, a product that received FDA approval. Those were the terms of the contract. Okay. So that's why the mad push for FDA approval, that's the mad push, you know, despite, and then when they have a panel that does not want to approve it, you know, especially for certain age groups, like for younger age groups, they just kick all those people out and bring in a new whole panel to vote on. Right. And so that's, it's just so yeah. sick. There's it's so crazy. much change that's needed, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. It's these bodies that are supposed to be there to protect us and regulate these products. And I have just found so much on these clinical trials, specifically, you know, the, the, the doctors, the principal investigators that are running these trials, there's so much stuff that I found. I just, I can't wait to, to find somebody to help me write it because okay. I'm not very good at explaining. I see it. I find it. I look through, I just, I have trained eyes that look for these certain things, but I just have a, I have a hard time relaying the message and why that matters. That's kind of just been something I'm, I'm trying to work on. Are, work you, on. Uh, are, you, are you trying to like put it in like a book form? No. Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, you, you don't, you should, you have you heard of Kent Heckin Lively, Heckin Lively? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to pronounce his name. So he mm -hmm. teams up with people and helps him write books. So he's done like, well, he's worked with Judy Mikevitz. He's worked with, oh. um, he's worked with, um, um, I know, uh, Gosh, uh, Zach Voorhees. I know he worked mm -hmm. with uh, Ryan Hartwig and, and helped them take their information and actually put it in book form. So yeah, I don't know him. I do a book. I want to just. I want the people to see this now. I got you because got it's you. just so relevant to, you know, the things that that people need to know about this product. Oh, who man. these people are that are running these trials, and what's in the pipeline now. It's just, it's so important, but again. Okay. Well, do you have anything that you want to drop on us real quick? And maybe we'll have you back next time and we can put together like a formal like presentation maybe. I mean, there's so much. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start. Again, just okay. to me, the conflicts of interest. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's huge. Just, yeah, exactly. Well, Hey, let's, let's stay in touch about that. You know, if there's anything I can do to help you with that, like if you want to do like some sort of PowerPoint or something or like compare notes, like I'd be help, happy to help formulate something and maybe we can come on, have you back and we can do like a formal like presentation or something. I don't know, just an offer, you know, something to consider. Or if you ever do get that put together and you want to come back on and we can put it out there, let's do it. So I'm all about talking on these, these podcasts and getting awesome. the information out. I, I, you know, I do love people and, you know, although I do have a little bit of a, you know, I feel like when I do these interviews, I say weird things and I do crazy things with my mouth, but <laughs> I just want the information out and I want, I'm just, I'm just, I'm a person yeah. and, you know, what I saw in these clinical trials may not matter to you um, or, or they might. And they do. Yeah. I mean, they matter to a lot of people. And I know that for a fact, there's a lot of people listening and watching right now. And, uh, you know, we're all very grateful for your courage and for, um, you know, stepping out and putting yourself you. out there and, uh, getting this information out there. So right on. Well, Brooke, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we'll do this again for sure. But, uh, in the meantime, like, is there anything you want to point people to? I know you have your Twitter, but anything else you want to bring people's attention for to? now? I have my Twitter. I don't know how, yeah. I don't know how long that's going to last. Um, you know, I feel like every day I lose somebody, you know, close that, that I work with even, um, 
they get, you know, deplatformed or put in Twitter jail or whatever it is. I've never had that happen, but I'm sure it's going to eventually come. But that's, that's, you know, where I, I, I put a lot of, um, you know, fun facts on, on there. Awesome. But that's, that's really the only place, but I appreciate you allowing me the time to, to come on and, and share this with Oh, it's really, truly my pleasure. And so you guys, that's at I am Brooke Jackson, B-R-O-O-K Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N on Twitter. So give her a follow and just stay up to date. And yeah, Brooke, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for spending your fourth evening with me here, fourth of July evening with me. And uh, are you guys going out and seeing any fireworks or anything tonight? Or We are going to stay home okay. and watch them from the yard. Cool. We live, in, okay. we live in a county, so we're able to shoot fireworks and... Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I'm in Nashville. Apparently Nashville has like one of, if not the biggest fireworks shows in the whole country. Oh, cool. So I guess, and it's been raining enough the last few days oh, to where good. they're, where they're saying they're going to do it. So I'm going to go check that out, but, uh, awesome. Well, happy fourth, everybody. Thank you for sitting in with us, Brooke, keep up the good fight and please let me know if there's anything I can do or, you know, anything that we can do here to help you out. So I appreciate it very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.